Hello, welcome to the Co-Design in Publics podcast, a space where we bring together activists, practitioners, and academics to examine and discuss design ideas on the public realm. My name is Juan Subillaga. My name is Asim Inam. And we are your hosts for this episode. Today is the last episode of our podcast. Earlier in October, Professor Asim Inam, Dr. Charlotte Lemansky, and I met to chat about lessons from the Co-Designing Publics Research Network after the end of a series of events we held throughout 2021. What follows are a few highlights of our conversation with some reflections on our collaborations and ideas for what comes next. Before we start, we would like to thank all of our colleagues and network partners who made this project possible, as well as the fantastic audience we have had following our conversations. We hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, so I had two thoughts, I mean, just to organize the discussion a little bit. I mean, there's sort of the process itself, building a research network, talking to each other, coming together, and then the content, you know, what did we learn? What kinds of issues came up culminating with the symposium? Yeah, so I was thinking about the process and, you know, the title of the, of the research network, co-designing publics, in a sort of, not quite, but sort of in a way, the process embodied that notion of co-designing publics, which is, groups of people coming together around issues that they care about, not just care about, but they act on uh, through their scholarship, through their practice, through their activism. I think we can talk about that. We can talk about how the language of co-designing publics, plural, at first glance, it's not clear what it means because people have got so many assumptions that are often very disciplinary specific, that each discipline has its own idea of what co-design means and what the public publics, public space, public design, what it means, and challenging those disciplinary norms, disrupting, if you like, disrupting those disciplinary norms is really difficult, but really, really important. And one of the ways we were able to do it in this network was because we brought together a group who spanned different disciplines, different countries, different practical and scholarly perspectives. Not to say it was easy, but that that's what made it fun and exciting was that we were able to disrupt any kind of sense, normative sense of this is what co-design is, this is what publics are, because each person in the network came with a different disciplinary perspective. So you couldn't cling to your assumptions, your normative assumptions about what those things are. And that is where exciting academic work. I think work that's, that was quite evident also in the process. So at the beginning, the first conversations we had, everyone came with that definition or those kind of ideas. So at the beginning, also with the project partners, there was this sense of, oh, we're all doing very different work and how can this be related? How can this come together under this umbrella of co-designing publics? But towards the end, we, we could see the overlaps and it, we could see the things in common more clearly. So it's, it was very interesting to see that evolution in the conversation throughout the three events. Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons I really like the name more and more co-designing publics because your first reaction should be, huh? <laughs> you know, which is exactly to make you think. So it's both yeah, bringing your own perspective, your own experience, but also being open Oh, it might not be quite what you think. And I also like the fact that it was a kind of emergent process. 
people were sort of open to each other. I know I absorbed a lot from all of you. And, you know, looking at my notes about, I really tried to integrate people's points of views and learning from each other. So uh, I think this emergent process is really important. People sometimes don't have patience for that. Either as scholars where we need to define things, terms have to be clear, there has to be a literature review. Or, I mean, our practitioner collaborators were fantastic, but I know sometimes in practice, well, no, this is the way it's done. This is the way I've done it, et cetera. So I really enjoyed this provocative title, kind of a little bit puzzling, and the emergent process that came out of it. And I think you touched on something that was really important there, which is about people coming from, you know, practitioners, people coming from non-academic backgrounds, uh, and we're all set in our ways, in, in whatever our ways might be, whether it's a you know normative disciplinary framework or a normative practice-based framework. Um, and that those conversations, not just between practitioners and academics, but between practitioners working in completely different contexts, was absolutely crucial for challenging our all of our assumptions about what does it mean to co-design, what what does it mean to be working in um, urban publics. So uh, to me, that was that was absolutely crucial. And I think within academia, we've become quite normalized to the idea that conversations between academia and practice need to happen. That's kind of accepted. And, and there's this big push for interdisciplinary work that's been accepted. I, I don't think we've always acknowledged how hard that is, but it's been accepted in principle. What I don't think that, that we're yet doing enough of and, and what we did in this network was practitioners talking to practitioners who wouldn't have even known each other or come into conversation with each other if it weren't for setting up these sorts of networks. So I think that was something absolutely innovative and crucial that happened through this research network that I think we could shout more loudly about. I agree. And a lot of the practitioners uh, mentioned that, that they, and I think it's learning from each other, but also kind of creating an international solidarity that, you know, they're all sort of, struggling, which is part of whenever you'd want to do something real and substantial, it is a struggle, of course, in very different contexts. What was very admirable, which I knew from the profiles, is they fully embrace the political. Uh, they never pretend this is technical, this is policy, this is aesthetic, and which is reality, you know, that it is, of course, it's a political process, but to embrace it, engage with it in different, to different degrees, some were more explicit, some were more implicit. You know, we knew that, you know, the kind of people we wanted to collaborate with would be doing really, you know, admirable, tough work under very difficult circumstances and how would they accommodate this time and effort for this. So we had to really think about that, but uh, I must say everyone really rose to the occasion. I mean, really hats off to all our local partners. Uh, I think you're right, but I, th I think it was also really important that we had the academic partners because it can be quite overwhelming and quite disconcerting as a practitioner to be engaging in a space that is seen to be academic. So I think that if I was going to have a limitation of what we did, um, and it's always good to, to critique what we do, it was that the workshops that we ran were still largely academic spaces, right? And, to, and so we kind of invited practitioners into our space, if you like. I think what would be really challenging going forward is if we could think about how we create spaces that are neither academic nor practitioner, but somehow are, are more of a hybrid. 
obviously it was a virtual space, but I mean, in terms of the ways that we um, structured the program and, and the ways that, that we thought about what we were trying to produce and what we were trying to do um, was still not, not 100% academic only, but it was still, maybe you disagree with me, but I feel it was still kind of an academic space in that sense. Um, and I think that would be, that can be quite disconcerting and overwhelming. And so I think the role of academic partners there as kind of a bridge was also really, really important. Yeah, I agree with you, absolutely. And some of that comes from, you know, how resources are structured. I mean, this was a grant from an organization that is used to giving it to academics. They have all kinds of academic criteria. It has to go through the university, how you justify the resources. So yeah, no, I agree with you. If it was a more egalitarian space, uh, and I haven't come across that many. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, as academics, we're invited to practitioner spaces as, as well, of course. Yes. And you're right, the funding is, is the biggest constraint. Yes, and uh, resources are still, as we know, concentrated in the global north. And so that's where the resources flow. But yeah, that could be something absolutely we can think about uh, in our next steps. I, it was quite open-ended. You know, again, I'm kind of talking about the process. Uh, that was the great things about this grant. It's not like, oh, you must have an edited book, you must have journal articles, you must have, you know, 200-page report. So, in other words, there weren't expectations. But having said that, me personally, I think we exceeded our expectations, given the ups and downs and the huge challenges everyone faced. And I'm just talking about myself in terms of my learning. It was just really stimulating and enlightening and things like that. And I think we can, at some point, maybe come back to your presentation, Charlotte, at the end, which was quite thought-provoking. It did a great job of both sort of summarizing, but also saying there are these kind of questions that need to be thought about and addressed. And uh, maybe I realized this uh, process of learning is it's an effort. Coming back to the academic side, you know, we all have PhDs, et cetera, et cetera. We have you know, these positions is to really make an effort to be open to different ways of thinking. I, I, I agree. And, and um, I was looking through my presentation and in the presentation, what I talked about, you know, when I was drawing the public symposium to an end was what is really was what does co-design mean in practice? And each partner talked about, each partner in academic talked about a different aspect of co-design. But one of my kind of concluding comments was that was actually that co-design is messy. It is conflictual. It is antagonistic. And actually, maybe that's part of it. Is that is it a hindrance or is it actually an asset that co-design is complicated, messy, antagonistic, um, doesn't, doesn't always produce nice, neat little answers? Actually, we could say that's an asset because it's far more representative, participatory, whatever word you want to use. And that actually, if we are genuinely co-designing with other people, other institutions, other voices, it's very hard to produce a nice, neat little boxed answer. And that actually, maybe that shouldn't be our goal. You know, it's about embracing and recognizing the complexities. I think on that, the it, it struck me that in all our conversations, we didn't really mention the uh, something like consensus as a as a you know like goal of co-design we talked about participation we talked about long and long-term process contestation and so on but con consensus was never an objective was never an aim for that and i think that's right in line with what we with what you're saying um and it shows also how um 
I think thinking about co-design like that also allows us to uh, look at different contexts and look at different practitioners in different contexts that operate differently, but can all come together under this idea of co-design that's quite messy and uh, open-ended, I think. Uh, very much so. And especially, you know, what are we co-designing? That's where I'd like to reintroduce the term publics, which was there from the very beginning, something I've been thinking about for a long time. I've always challenged the notion of community you know, as some sort of, you know, mythical entity. Um, and that's where coming back to the points both of you made, uh, as you said, co-designing, especially publics, which are so fluid and it's different when you're designing a park or something like, oh yeah, we've done these, you know, 40 houses, great. But publics, uh, that's why I really think uh, co-designing publics goes hand in hand with radical democracy because radical democracy is also messy and antagonistic and un, you know unpredictable. But it's the, at least to my mind, is the best system of self-governance that we know of. And and if you remember, I, I when you talked about radical democracy, I then kind of followed up by talking a little bit about radical incrementalism, which is this uh, approach that's been advocated by many, but but I know it best from Edgar Petersi, who's the director of the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town. And I like this idea of radical incrementalism because it absolutely picks up on what you're saying, Asim, that we need radical and it needs to be democratic, but that often change is slow and gradual. And that actually sometimes that's appropriate. It doesn't mean change doesn't always have to be rapid. If we want change to be long-term, sometimes it does need to be incremental. And if we want change to be co-designed and participatory and representative and democratic, often these things don't happen quickly, but they still need to be radical. <laughs> and so putting together incrementalism and, and radicalism or rad radical is really important. Um, um, I, I mean, I also wanted to pick up on you kind of saying about what are we co-designing? And again, something that emerged from our discussions is co-design as, as an outcome, but also as a process, that the, that the process of co-design is just as important for intrinsic value, not just as an instrumental mechanism, but actually has intrinsic value in itself as part of what is being produced is the co-design process, as well as the outcome, which is the public's. But the, the public's is also part of the process, right? Um, and that, that the process and the outcome are completely connected and intertwined. I agree, because I think that's one of the fundamental challenges of society and has been from the beginning, which is how do we live with each other? How do we work together? How do we make quote unquote progress together? It's a very, I think that's, that absolutely, I think is fascinating. It's one of the biggest challenges and we are always open to that. Um, and so, you know, uh, when we introduced the term informal urbanisms, there was reaction, uh, not in our network from other uh, colleagues and friends. Oh yeah, we know it. There's, yeah, it's, yeah. And I thought, no, we don't. There's, it's constantly evolving. You're constantly learning. Uh, it's not, you know, well, uh, you know, informal, formal is all the same thing. And so I think what I liked about this network that we set up is uh, people really embrace this kind of investigative and exploratory attitude rather than, yeah, we've done it, we know it, the literature is out there or the practices are out there. 
uh, but it's very big, very complex. It's constantly changing. Yeah, and, and I felt it, was, it wasn't even just we're learning it, but also that we're learning it through doing it, that, that, that it's particularly amongst the practitioners, that it isn't just we're learning it by hearing what other people are saying. We're, that is part of learning it, absolutely, but we're learning it by doing it, hearing about what was happening um, in Kali, for example, was kind of eye-opening about a context that paralleled so much with Cape Town, South Africa, and yet was so different in some other ways. Uh, and that really resonated with thinking about what is co-design in, in practice, in practice, <laughs> if you see what I mean, you know, learning through doing. Um, and again, I think that was really important for our network. Exactly. And so there are kind of repercussions uh, for for example, I think what you're saying resonates with me about one of the potentials of design. This is something we've been questioning, challenging, but in my view, design for me is always about being critical, uh, being transdisciplinary and being engaged rather than conventional. And so for example, what you're saying, learning by doing is the fundamental ethos of design studios. This kind of learning by doing, which also means open-ended, you don't know yeah, we have a rough idea where we're going, but we don't know exactly where we'll end up and being okay with that. But, but I think you also need to be aware that that language of, um, what did you call it, design studios, that's a very disciplinary specific language. So I, I don't teach um, design studios. That, and so again, it, it, again, what's great about this network is that we had different disciplines and, and we're forced to confront what we take as an assumption um, the language and the practices that we take as an assumption and share them and explain what we mean by them. So that, that isn't part of my, you know, I'm not teaching design studios, I'm giving lectures <laughs> and, um, and seminars. Um, and, and there's parallels, of course, there's parallels in what we're doing, um, but different disciplines are, are, are coming at these issues in different ways. And again, it's learning from each other and learning from doing. I agree. So I, I, I think, so that's one exciting part of design pedagogy and design practices, learning by doing, at least non-conventional practice. There's a lot of conventional practice, you know exactly you will have what kind of building. Uh, but the other is, which I think really transcends disciplines also, is being creative. Uh, I think one of the best things about design pedagogy beyond the formal producing drawings, models, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, helping people learn to tap into their creativity in the training. And we are all capable of being very creative. And in the challenges that cities face, we have to be creative. Yeah, I think maybe I'm in a celebrity mood. I, I really like our title a lot that design is embedded, but not in the conventional sense. It's co-designing publics, which uh, I think nobody fully understands, which is. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'd say that the only limitation of the title is also that it's asset, which is that people aren't quite sure what it means. <laughs> and to me, that's actually an asset. But of course, it, it is a limitation in the sense that people see a title and think hmm. it, it, it. For me, it's an asset if people think I don't know what that means. I want to read more. It's a limitation if people read it and think, oh, I already know what that means. As you were saying earlier, that's already been done or that's how my discipline does it. That's that's what we want to challenge. I'd actually rather someone read it saying no idea what they mean. Read on. Um, and so that's a real asset of the title, um, but we need to we need to harness that rather than kind of the, and avoid the kind of the, the risk of of people kind of sinking into disciplinary expect disciplinary assumptions about what those words mean. But even in terms of the practices, I could see 
for example, I think this came up, you highlighted this quite well in your summary at the end, is the relationship to the state. How our colleagues in different cities, they have to deal with the state. They just can't say, nah, the state sucks. We, we don't agree with them. And it was very interesting how they deal with the state in different ways from Kali to Jakarta. Uh, and I think, you know, I remember if I recall, uh, you put it very well, uh, you said, I think a good summary is it's both about consensus with the state or cooperation and conflict. It's not either or. And that came out very much from the Kali presentation where, I talk, you know, where, you know from the Asimivid uh, case study talked about consensus and conflict, not consensus or conflict. <laughs> and that was, that was really important and really challenging to think about working with the state through both consensus and conflict and that the two are not mutually, cons you know, mutually exclusive, but they can work together. And, and um, the case study from, from Carly talked really clearly about balancing working with power while working against power, power being the state, but, but the state not being the only um, vector of power. Exactly, and that really resonated with me because I'm also writing a book on Las Vegas and I have a chapter called Labor Unions as Urbanists. And this amazing labor union in Las Vegas, one of the, does exactly that. They, uh, but they do it more with their industry, the, the casino industry, their conflict and then their consensus. And with them, it's just sort of interesting. It's again, a very practical survival because uh, even with our partners in these cities, sometimes they rely on the state for resources or legitimacy. Uh, so they may not agree politically with it, but in the Las Vegas case, uh, they depend, these labor unions depend on the casino industry for their survival, for their jobs, for the benefits they get, training, healthcare, et cetera. So they realize that just being in conflict doesn't work either for their particular purposes. And it's, it's very interesting, very fascinating to see how different groups navigate that sort of cooperation conflict uh, sort of dichotomy simultaneously. And I think, again, we have so much to learn from the practitioners. Very much so, very much so. And although it was articulated through the Kali case study explicitly, it was implicitly present in all the presentations where people talk, talked about kind of presenting their needs to the state, but also being involved in protests, some of which were quite radical, some of which were, were much more kind of everyday. Yeah, and that brings up another interesting point in terms of both the process of this research network and its content is how do we share these insights without jeopardizing the status of our local partners who are very forthright uh, in the workshops and symposium. I, th I mean, I guess as part of co-design, it has to be in discussion with them uh, and kind of taking the lead and each partner and empirical context is quite different and we'll have have kind of a different view, but that's very labor intensive. I think one thing for this podcast, we may want to think about what are some key insights that we did learn. So, I mean, you had some questions that need to be answering, but like between the three of us, can we think of either, you know, conceptual insights or, you know, insights about practice that sort of come to the fore? I mean, one thing I, 
I was very impressed by, and I, again, you know, different people resonated in different ways, is um, this, gets, this gets personal. It is personal. You know, all these things are personal and political. Is uh, I'll give you an example of Elisa in Jakarta. Uh, because I think she was one of the worst, first presenters in the workshop. And I was just immediately struck by, first of all, what incredible circumstances they're working in. Uh, not just COVID-19, but political turmoil, uncertainty, economic injustice. Yet the two uh, sort of characteristics that came out is a kind of resilience, kind of persistence of keeping going. And the other was a sort of calmness with which they persist. Because, you know, it's a state of constant turmoil, constant vulnerability. And made me think, yeah, that's the kind of thing that is needed to do this work. And so there are these kind of ways of working. Tactics. Tactics, exactly. Juan is writing about tactics, maybe. You can yeah, actually, these both things, the last two things you guys have mentioned, resonates a lot with my PhD research. One has to do with tactics and strategies used by activists. And within that, how, for example, engagement with the state has a strategic value and how, as you were saying, it can be both conflictual, but also kind of like collaborative at the same time. And it takes, it is a process in which kind of activists try to navigate and develop their own autonomy when they try to figure out when to be collaborative, when to be more challenging and how this fits into a broader political agenda and helps them work towards their political goals and then what is the impact of that in the actual physical space of the city they inhabit i think what's really important that you drew out there was the relationship between the physical space and the political space or what we could say the material and the political um and that the two and and i think that is something that came up from our network is that the two can't be can't be separated they are entwined. They are. They overlay on each other. They both support each other, but they also um, cause tensions and aggravations. Um, and that that layering of the the material and the political is absolutely crucial to understanding co-designing publics, or just understanding publics. That the that the materiality and the political uh, nature of publics are inseparable. I mean, Asim. I mean, I don't know. Does that resonate with your thinking? Absolutely. And I think uh, what you both are saying brings another thought building on what you said is, I think we need more sophisticated ways of theorizing the city that reflects the, the city's complexity in the kind of issues we're talking about. And it is happening. A lot of people are working on it. But I think that's one of the underlying aspects we were grappling with in the research network uh, is how do you capture, understand, document these wonderful richness of, uh, you know, co-designing publics uh, conceptually and through cases, through documentation. Um, and I'm, you know, there's obviously always a reductionist uh, tendency because of the nature of publishing and academic practice. Uh, but how do we begin to even as human beings, and you were saying people like, oh, what is co-designing? How do we 
have a sophisticated way of thinking that reflects much more the complexity of cities. And I think that's an ongoing process. I'm not sure if we'll ever get there. And I think you're right. This is what's been dominating debates within urban theory for the last two decades. I mean, it has a longer history than that, but but very explicitly over the last two decades. And we're talking about, firstly, post-colonialising urban theory, the Ananya Roy, Jennifer Robinson, uh, and the critiques of that, the Scott and Storper idea that, that the city is about the land nexus, as opposed to more kind of radical ways of, of thinking about diversity. And then the more recently, the planetary urbanization thesis, Brenner and Schmidt, which has been heavily critiqued as a kind of a totalizing theory that implies there's only one way of, of urbanizing, and that's about economic accumulation and, and territorial expansion. You know, so it's a very spatial and economic way of thinking about the urban and a critique is that that that, that kind of ignores diversity uh, diversity in terms of the urban experience but also diversity in terms of theoretical perspectives um, and these are the exact debates that are dominating urban theory and I don't think that there's going to be a an outcome there's not going to be an end <laughs> to these debates where finally one person or, or a group of scholars say aha this is how we theorize urban diversity. A bit like I said, co-design is messy, conflictual, antagonistic, and that is its raison d'etre. It, you know, it's actually an asset. I actually think that, you know, as we're theorizing the urban, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where there is, and I don't think we should be aiming to get to a point where there is a consensus and a singular narrative of theorizing the urban, but that this will always be complex, conflictual, antagonistic. Uh, and that's where excellent debate happens. Um, but I also completely agree with you that that debate has to include diversity, diverse voices, diverse experiences, diverse urban trends uh, in order to have, in order to be, um, make any attempt at theorizing what is a very complex space, the urban, as well as a very complex political process, economic process, social and cultural formation. Sorry, that was like a potted history of urban theory. No, that was excellent. So I think what I'm getting from what you said. So maybe it's more a question of ongoing conversations, which is sort of what we were trying to do in the network. Uh, because I'm very fascinated by what I call mainstream practice, mainstream policy that dominates. Uh, so for example, a concrete example would be Richard Florida. Uh, I still see people writing about creative class. I still see city after city after city pursuing that and how those dominant uh, ideas really have a huge influence, much more than some of the ideas we are discussing. And so that's sort of the power imbalance. Uh, and now, for example, the big idea that everybody's excited about is the 15-minute city, uh, which is you know nice, small, easy, implementable, and it has a huge influence on practice. And I think that how do we have these voices in practice is uh, it has to do with, you know, uh, like all these ideas about creative class, 15-minute city, all, they all come from well-established elite institutions and, uh, you know, from the global north where they have much more power to communicate, they have publications, they have YouTube channels, etc. cetera. Uh, so I would say that's the other thing is in terms of these ongoing conversations, how do we ultimately influence the world of practice? Uh, especially the state always comes in because they have huge resources, but also, you know, uh, private development, private investment, which has a huge influence on cities. You know, smart cities, another example, which is 
heavy, heavily critiqued, but it's still out there and a big influence on how cities are shaped and reshaped. I think something that's important there, uh, and that's something that I particularly liked about this network, was that in these different cities, there's many activists on the ground working to highlight the issues of these buzzwords and these mainstream design approaches. And we brought some of these practitioners and activists into, into the network. Of course, our partners, but also some of the guest speakers in the symposium. So having platforms like this that, of course, come from academic funding and they're based in universities and so on, but give space for those voices to, to be kind of like amplified to a group of people or uh, that might be interested in these topics who would not otherwise be able to listen and hear and learn about what's happening in these different cities. I, I agree. And then I, I guess your challenge, I seem, was, you know, how do we bring about change? And I think I go back to my incrementalism, radical incrementalism. And that isn't as a kind of a get out that, oh, well, we don't need to do anything fast. It is it is that we do need to do things, but we need to make sure that they're embedded. And, and one of the ways to do that is to work with local partners who are themselves already embedded in discussions, networks, practices, and to find ways that we can support them, bolster them, um, work with them to bring about incremental, radical democracy to kind of combine <laughs> um, our, two, our two kind of conceptual approaches. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when we release a new episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at CodesignPublics or Instagram at CodesigningPublics. This podcast is part of the Codesigning Publics Research Network, a project funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council and hosted at Cardiff University. Thank mm-hmm. you.